Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent. Good morning, everybody. We're going to do a podcast discussion today about all the new grant funding that is going to be coming into government entities and its impact on procurement, both in terms of overall volume and also trying to remind some of our end users about requirements that will need to be in place from a federal level that that have been a little bit faster in the period of COVID, but sooner or later, all of those go away and we'll need to be able to account for what we did with the money. So it's kind of a two-piece topic. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we have a round of ARPA money coming, which generally organized uh, towards a, a variety of governmental needs. And then there's a series of ESSER grants, which will be happening at the end of the month. And those are more K-12 oriented. I actually have a presentation with a group of industry folks next Wednesday, uh, the 14th on that topic, if you are in higher ed or K-12. And then there's a demand for infrastructure grants that are coming. I've had lots of clients talk to me about the need to expand the capacity for construction and, and infrastructure type procurement. So why don't I ask, Jamie, are you seeing any of these trends so far in terms of new requests from agencies or how are you thinking about the the incoming money and what effect, if any, does it have on your planning for resource load? I was ready to answer your question until you asked me about resources and all I could, all it made me think was, hey, we've got a lot more money, we've got a lot more stuff to buy, and I got no more people to help support the purchase, right, as it is classic with state government. Um, But I would just, I guess I would add to that, yeah, we are seeing a lot of requests coming in. um, And what I appreciate so much about what's happening happening in our state is uh, the agencies are reaching out to us saying, hey, we think we're getting about this much money. This is what we're thinking about. Um, So I think it's an appropriate title that you have, you know, how does procurement prepare? Well, we prepare the same way we would with any other purchase, right? We collaborate with our state agency partners. um, We collaborate with our administration and we try to make sure that the competition rules are followed in as much as we possibly can. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just had a really interesting email come through, must have been 30 minutes ago that said, hey, we are getting X amount of money and we've got to buy an airplane. Oh, but wait, it's two helicopters plus another three helicopters plus a couple of Cessna planes plus another helicopter. And it's like, <sighs> wait a minute, we don't do that that often. So thank you for the heads up. I appreciate your timeline, but right, we still need to do the appropriate research with procurement. So all that in a long-winded way to say there, it, it demonstrates the need for partnership between the administration and the state agencies, technology, and procurement. So give us a heads up that you, even if you think you're getting some money, And that way we can collaborate and best advise as to how to make sure that we spend that money in the most um, effective manner. Jamie, how about on the IT side, have you heard much discussion about any inbound funding related to cyber? 
We did a presentation last week around supply resiliency and ransomware with Rob Hansfield and Steve Nichols from Georgia, which is I thought was a very interesting discussion. If any of you guys missed it, it's available on demand. But I know there's been some discussion about uh, what to do in response to that and a general interest in cyber. What, if anything, are you hearing on that front or what are you seeing in terms of increased demand as we come out of the COVID period to, to use and leverage some of this money? That is the hot topic right now. Both the CIO and CISO have me on speed dial. I think I hear from them on an hour-by-hour basis right now, especially the CISO. Um, Cybersecurity, protecting our own data, um, protecting the state from ransomware attacks and data breaches, et cetera, that is the number one topic right now, not only in our state, but I think um, across uh, state government and even farther. And I just, I just happened to notice that our CIO, the main CIO is actually joining us today. So he is listening. And Fred, if you're listening, um, I get it. You guys need to spend a lot of money in a timely manner, but you still got to follow procurement rules, right? And I know that Jenny would would support me on that. Um, and there's a fine balance between um, the procurement laws versus protecting the state. Procurement absolutely understands that cybersecurity moves fast and we need to adapt and balance that. And so I'm I'm appreciative of the opportunity to have the upfront discussions. It's I'm actually speaking next week at the NASPA Reach Conference on cybersecurity and procurement. And I just cannot stress enough that procurement, the CIO, the CISO need to have a very strong partnership to ensure that the protections are upheld throughout the, the not only the RFP process, but the contracts that result as well. Great question, Dustin. It's, I think it's on everybody's mind. So let's take the same topic over to Jenny. Are you seeing or hearing anything from your chair related to increased grant use or needs to do acquisitions, either because of inbound grant opportunities or because of the increased risk from some of the ransomware? Um, I know they're having discussions, you know, in the upper leadership area, so I'm not sure how specific they are. I think what we are hearing is a bunch of departments are getting chunks of money and feeling an enormous pressure to get it out quickly. Um, so I think what I can offer is some advice for anybody who's kind of going through this process um, is really the, the procurement process is not just the procurement rules for the state. It's also what the federal rules are for the money that's coming in. And what a lot of new people who haven't been through this process before, um, they, they kind of fall prey to the pressure that people want the money out quickly. Like I need the money, I need the money, I want the money. Or it's kind of a shiny toy syndrome where now we have some money, now we can purchase things that we haven't been able to purchase before. And those are kind of dangerous tracks to go down. So one recommendation is to study what happened um, during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which is ERA, um, in 2009. And there were many states who got large sums of money who got it out really quickly. But what they failed to understand was that the federal government always comes back and audits not on a very high level, but a very detailed level. And they will go down to the nitty gritty of the language to make sure that every dollar is spent appropriately. And if you don't spend it appropriately, then you have to pay it back, which would put states in, in a very um, diff- difficult predicament. So I think what the procurement folks, you know, what they can really do to help themselves and help their clients is really understand the specific rules for the money that's coming in. 
They need to spend some time really learning what the requirements are so that when they are going through the procurement requests, they really understand whether it's an appropriate request to begin with and what additional requirements they have to do as far as of the procurement process. So it's not just somebody coming to the procurement office and say, I need to procure helicopters or whatever. They really have to push back and say, you know, how does this meet? How can you demonstrate to your procurement staff that this meets the requirement of the funding? And a lot of times they'll come back and they'll come back and they won't know because they haven't done the homework themselves. So really the most important concept is you are going to be audited on every single penny at a very detailed level. So you have to go into the procurement process understanding that that's how you have to set it up. You have to have documentation. You have to make sure that you've met all the requirements and not in a kind of squishy way, in a very solid way. And you have to do your research on how the federal government has done this in the past, which is ERA. There's lots and lots of information on the web on how they audited and the findings they came up with. <clears throat> and that will help you develop the process for the beginning. So I think that's, that's um, an, one recommendation. Another one is be careful of offloading this responsibility onto third parties. A lot of departments will be stressed because this money is coming in and it's going to be a heavy workload and they want to offload it to a third party to do it for them. And they, that, you know, easy isn't always better because you're still going to go through the audit process. You're still going to be responsible. So there's no, there's no shortcuts in this process. And the other thing is don't use this money in any way to be a budget balancer or to pay for things that you don't have enough money with your own, your own budget, <clears throat> because that, if that's a restriction in the federal money, they're really going to tag you on that. So those are kind of the recommendations of coming into this world, which unfortunately for, you know, for Jamie and uh, other folks that have short staff anyway, to do this additional research is definitely a burden. But if you really go through and do the research, it's going to help the, the process enormously as you go through it. Jenny out. So I'm going to pick up on Jenny's topics for a couple minutes and then I'll hand it to Christina and then I'll ask Justin to chime in. So uh, Jenny, great points in terms of how to buy in a way that is compliant with the federal processes and thinking ahead. If the phrase two CFR 200 doesn't roll off your lips, then it should, because that's where you find a lot of this. And that's where a lot of the process of squaring and reconciling with federal expectations are. Actually, on the Civic Initiatives website, under the button on the front page, it says National Cooperative Resource Page. There still is a remaining zip file that I have up there from more of the COVID era, which was the key FEMA guidance. And in that zip, there's there's four elements. There's the FEMA memo, to which I've looked up, and I can't see that it was ever eliminated or replaced. So if anybody happens to know, then let me know. That established that we're in a period of emergency and exigency, which allows for some relaxed procurement standards. Um, there was also guidance on a simplified fact sheet, key FEMA requirements for the states, and then required federal clauses or for non-states. So the required federal clauses is basically all of the 2CFR 200 in terms of what has to be done to be compliant from a federal perspective. Relaxed rules doesn't mean no rules. So being able to go through that and being able to assess your contracts both in terms of new solicitations that you're doing or cooperative contracts that you may be using to see if they're compliant. Another interesting wrinkle is that requirements for states and requirements for non-states, which are obviously city, county, that sort of thing, 
are different. So there may be certain things that at a state level that you're able to do that the non-states do not have that same flexibility. So you may have a cooperative contract that would be available at a state level, but if a local buys against it and it's not hitting all of those two CFR 200 expectations, then some of those expenditures could end up being pushed. Christina did an article with some checklist information where she actually listed some of what's being said around the ARPA, but it was a pretty good cut at just the general expectation of the feds on using federal money within some of these and what you need to do to compete it. There's certain clauses and you have to not be debarred in certain areas. It's just a general walkthrough of what you need to do in order to, to be compliant because one thing I guarantee you about almost any expenditure is three years from now when the auditors come through to review some of the documents or to press, nobody's going to remember how much pressure there was to push the money or use the money. They're only going to be going against the checklist. So it's important to think about it and regain some of this muscle memory. We need to rebolster this area. So Christina, you recently, you yesterday did uh, a little write-up of some of the findings that you had found in terms of being prepared for infrastructure money and, and so forth. Why don't you talk about what you wrote about, and then I'll pose a question to Justin. Thanks, Dustin. I think the number one pain point is not only what Jenny said as far as making sure that you're following the regulations and the guidelines to, to a T. One of the main areas with that would be following your own policies, following the policies that zero down from obviously the feds to the state to the local levels and making sure, you know, going through your manual a bit, making sure you're crossing all those T's, doing all those procedural things, including clauses, not only on the federal level, but also on the local level, because a lot of these auditors that will come in, not only from your local IG, as well as federal to look at this stuff, are going to have localized knowledge of what's required. And they're going to be, you know, they're going to be coming from various levels of kind of consulting that's hired by the feds to look at these things. So knowing that they're going to have that specialized understanding of these areas, just making sure dusting off those manuals and making sure that your uh, procurement documents, your solicitation documents actually incorporate that stuff that you may not have looked at in about 18 to 24 months because you've been busy with recovery as far as COVID goes and emergency purchasing. And the one other thing I'll mention is eligible use. So at least with ARPA, it is more focused on the recovery effort that we're going through right now. You're looking at, you know, supporting public health expenditures, addressing negative economic impacts that have been caused by COVID-19 as, as far as work, harms to workers, households, small businesses, impacted industries, replacing public sector revenue that has been lost to secure services, uh, providing premium pay for essential workers so you can backfill through there, and investing in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. So there's a little sprinkle of IT into the ARPA, where we really are going to see construction and, um, and IT improvements is going to be coming up in this infrastructure bill that I believe is, what, $1.9 So um, you've got, you got like $4 trillion that are coming up. Again, making sure that you're really paying attention to those eligible uses because they will de-obligate on the back end. And, and as Jenny said, it will need to be paid back uh, somehow if it wasn't for the appropriate use. And I will lastly say that there was an interim final rule issued back in May, so people can reference that, as well as the checklist that hopefully has been updated within the last 6 to 12 months by the feds, which is how to stay in compliance with 2CFR and 
whenever I did these type of procurements, I really found that checklist helpful. As long as I was able to check all those boxes that were applicable, I felt pretty good about the solicitations and whatever I was putting out there. And we never had, as far as I know, any issues with any of those. So just making sure that you are aware of all the resources that are out there to help you along in this process. You know, it really doesn't need to be done in a vacuum. Thank you. So Justin, you're with a University of California system, uh, which may or may not have some of the same grant tranches that we've been talking about, but certainly you're probably no stranger to color of money issues and what happens when you have some money that has some set of requirements and other money that has other set of requirements and trying to manage all that. And of course, in a, in a higher ed environment, there's going to be any number of random projects that may need to have certain compliance points met or certain audit points met. Is that an issue that you have sought to, to, to think about as you guys are setting up contracts or where and if ever does color of money kind of issues come into play for you? Yeah, I, that's a great question, Dustin. And I, I really uh, think that's one of the advantages that we have in, in higher ed for when we're looking at funding that comes from programs like the ones we're talking about today is that even in our normal um, we are dealing with multiple sources of funding, including funding that comes from uh, from the state of California, from the federal government, from tuition and fees, from uh, you know from revenue, uh, and so you know within embedded in our procurement processes, in our financial systems, and how we process our everyday business, um, you know you have uh, you have the ability to manage that source of funding, and you know, we're coming through a period of 20 or so months where people have been paying special attention uh, to these um, these COVID-related programs, uh, both to support uh, response and, and now recovery. Uh, so, from a from an ordering perspective, uh, we're we're set up pretty well to to manage that. Um, you know, what we are seeing is that um, you know people are looking to higher education, at least here in California as a good place to send the money um, because uh, we can be an engine for, uh, for the recovery of the, of the economy, both statewide and in the local communities that our campuses are found in. Uh, so, uh, you know, I certainly in our recently passed state budget, um, we saw investment in, in some of our, um, our capital infrastructure and deferred maintenance that, that we hadn't, um, that hadn't been easy, as easy to come by in, in, in the past. Um, the, the funding comes at a, a time when um, we're very busy anyway. Uh, you know, we are preparing now to, to bring students back to campus uh, coming up in, in August and September. Uh, and, and there's always a lot of activity, uh, procurement activity related to that. Uh, and even more so this year, knowing that um, a lot of those facilities um, have been mostly uh, dormant, you know, over, over, the past, uh, over the past academic year. Um, what, what we've been doing to kind of prepare and get everybody ready is, you know, I think working from a system-wide level, um, you know, we try to make sure uh, that the, uh, the contracts and the supplier relationships that we have are all valid and have contract language in place that supports any type of funding uh, that, that comes in. Um, <clears throat> we engage, uh, we have a, a system-wide uh, supply chain meeting every week where we've been inviting suppliers over the last couple of quarters to come in and talk about what they anticipate in terms of uh, whether that's facilities operations or um, or IT uh, investment uh, that's likely coming up in industry related to this this funding, 
uh, and then, uh, you know, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, we're on hand to provide guidance and, and support the, and, and support the, the activity as it comes in. You know, I, I think, um, you know, the other interesting thing that, um, you know, that I think Jamie mentioned and a couple of others too, uh, was around this idea of constrained resources. You know, one particularly interesting thing about the timing of this is that, you know, the way the fiscal years run, um, this is the time of year a lot of people retire. And so, um, you know, late summer, early fall, while it's a busy time for us, is also a time of the year where we're typically not fully staffed. Uh, and so, you know, working to manage through that that surge as well. Um, but, um, you know, I, I always, always try to make it as easy as possible and embedded in our process and our systems uh, that, you know, as you're, as you're doing requisitions and selecting the, the source of uh, the particular fund source that you're using, that, that, that process embeds the process for you. So, Jennifer, you know, one of the ways that people try to deal with the workload, there may be some things that require full RFPs and complex attainment. In other cases, it may be uh, I need to buy certain commodities or certain certain things that otherwise would be perfectly appropriate in a cooperative environment. Do you guys do anything to help people verify the original construct of the of the the cooperative contracts and that it met certain requirements? Or are you ever asked that? Um, just generally chime in on the topic that we're talking about if you wish. Yeah, thanks, Dustin. Hey, everybody. Jennifer Solentic from Compare Co-op. Um, really, we absolutely do, and, and I, everything you guys are talking about really is hitting home as it relates to cooperative purchasing being a huge benefit. And uh, Jenny, absolutely, uh, you know, we never want anyone to be using cooperative purchasing as, as a fallback or as a, I just don't want to do a bid or I don't have time to do a bid. But with that being said, there are a lot of amazing contracts out there for all types of products and services. And so um, one of the things, that, one of the features that we find to be most valuable in the platform is that we have a question and answer feature. And one of the things that we encourage people to do for things like federal grant dollars is instead of doing, you know, going through thousands of pages of documentation or hundreds of pages or tens of hundreds, using the platform to ask mandatory questions. Uh, this question and answer section can be made mandatory and any type of information can be asked, including does it meet this specific requirement? Does this contract meet this specific requirement? And if it does, what page does it meet that requirement on? also is such a great tool, Dustin, as you mentioned, for those things that are, you know, everyday things we're buying that aren't under grant dollars or under federal dollar requirements. So I think using the cooperative purchasing model or the third parties that are already out there, whether it be for these dollars, I think another great part of the Compare Co-op tool is also the audibility that we actually keep track of all of these questions and the comparisons, uh, and that even having used a cooperative contract, you are doing a comparison. And I know a lot of times with some of these federal dollars that even though an initial comparison was done, just having the benefit of knowing that you're tracking that you've actually compared the options that are out there is another relief to people. Great. That's it for me. Thanks. 
Thanks, Jennifer. Hey, uh, Dustin, yep. if I could, I, I could build on that. We do a, a fair amount of, of work as a lead agency at, at the University of California. And what we found during this period is, you know, um, in many cases, while we have a lot of, um, a lot of contract language in our normal RFPs that uh, address federal funding, um, we've worked with this, the, um, the SLED representatives from a lot of our um, the suppliers that, that we work with um, to address, you know, any gaps in, in the contracting language. So, so, you know, Jennifer's right. It, it's really, uh, it's really important to, to do dil- due diligence around the cooperative agreements to make sure um, that, you know, those contracts are updated to, to include the specific situation. That- so the ESSER, as an acronym, stands for the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund, and it is, it is going to be giving out subgrants to local education agencies to address the impact of COVID has had and continues to have on elementary and secondary schools across the nation. So ESSER as a grant is interesting because in the same way that COVID may have had a a national and a a micro-regional impact that meant that counties and and areas that had a higher amount of expertise with emergency response, say in a Florida versus a county in Montana that may not have as much need to have that prep, in the same way ESSER is going to be putting a lot of money out into primary and secondary education uh, which may have different levels of sophistication on dealing with some of those, which is why we're trying to do a little content. ARPA funds as well will, we received, my company received a solicitation request from a small city in Texas for some administrative funds. They said they'd received like two and a half million dollars of ARPA funds. And I looked them up and it was a, a 9,000 population bedroom community of a large city that I assume had never received that kind of funding. So there is a need to make sure that people understand how to do this stuff well and how to execute it in a way that is going to respond to the, to the workload. Another impact that I've seen or I've had talked about with clients is just the run that this will put on people who know how to do construction and infrastructure solicitations because that is a high-use area that has a specialized skill set and there's going to be a lot of demand on that area. So it'll be interesting to see what's happening there. I'm personally looking for some of those people myself just because of uh, requests from clients to be prepared to do that kind of work. So I'll open it up to the room in our last uh, few minutes here. Is there anything that you've thought of while we were talking that you want to chime in on or add as we come to the close? I keep these podcasts to about a half hour and we're vaguely close to that time. Jamie had to fall off to go back into a hearing. So Jenny, Justin, Christina, any final thoughts on this as we come into our closing period? Just a quick add here that it looks like periods of performance for these monies can run through December 31st of 2026. So, so I mean, if programs and, and different um, initiatives are started, you know, from now until then, you know, it's, it, we're talking at least five years here for this money uh, to play out. So I'm not sure about the infrastructure monies, but this is specifically on the ARPA. And I mean, when people are kind of strategic planning out, you know, their, their workload and their workforce in, in just even getting out these um, solicitations and, and whatnot or planning them, um, just consider that it's going to be a long time running. <laughs> so wanted to throw that in there. 
And this is Jenny. I agree completely with what Christina is saying. I think that um, the, the biggest part is the procurement part is really important, but for your strategic planning, you also have to have monitoring in place throughout the period that you're going to have your contracts or grants to make sure that people are paying attention to it through the whole life cycle of the money. And given that there may be elections and change in administration during the period of the grant, you want to make sure that these don't fall off because of that. So that's a really important thing. And the one thing that um, helped us in Massachusetts when we were going through the era um, American Recovery Act, and that was construction contracts or other grants that we had, is we came up with attachments that had the requirements listed in the attachments. So from a compliance point of view, including the specific attachments into the document as opposed to just referencing them, where you specifically said these are the things you needed to, to pay attention to, was very helpful for compliance. So that was, you know, it was, it was posted as part of the procurements. If there was procurement, it was attached to the actual contract. And then as part of the auditing part um, and the management through the period, people would go through that as a checklist to make sure that they were compliant. So that may save time, you know, a little bit more time on the front end to put it together, but it saves time and it ensures better compliance. Jenny out. Yeah, that's it. I'll, I'll just uh, close by saying, you know, I think it'll be fascinating to look back in one, three, five years at the investments that were made with these dollars. And we'll, we'll think in procurement that what we did was sort of protect access to those dollars for our organizations and make sure that we helped our, um, our campuses, our department leads, the people who are in, in thinking about how that money's invested help them access it, help them work through that process. But it'll be pretty fascinating to see um, the impact that these dollars have, you know, over the next uh, months and years. Well, and it's important that it is done well to retain the confidence that it was the proper and appropriate thing to do. And there's always a balance for procurement of trying to serve the customer by going quickly, but make sure that we're doing it in a way that it's matching our stewardship responsibilities. And I personally don't think those are contrasting concepts. I think you, you can have a call to action and a sense of urgency on how you work on this work, but you are helping to protect that department and also protect the, the leadership of your entity by making sure that the way that we spend money is going to match the light of day in a month or a year or two years by putting in place the things that allow this spending to meet the federal guideline expectation. And it takes a little bit of planning and it takes some template and, and tool and process development so that the compliance flows through the nature of the work. But it's one of the major differences between a shop that is handling purchasing transactions versus one it is more of a full service procurement shop. And I think that's why this is an important moment as the country comes out of a lot of the COVID period to say these are scarce tax dollars and they are important and for the purpose of helping drive recovery. So procurement has a great leadership opportunity in where we are and what's ahead. So with that, I will remind you of a couple things. One, as I mentioned, I do have a file on our Civic Initiatives page under the National Cooperative Resource page button on the front that has 
several of these documents in a zip, even though we're not only talking about FEMA. FEMA is kind of a canary in the coal mine as far as overall federal expectations. So um, all of the rules apply regardless of where you are. If you're interested in ESSER funding, there's an event that we're doing next Wednesday with several technology leaders um, and me talking about just some of the characteristics of this. So if that's of interest, then tune in then. And with that, I want to thank everybody for participating today and wish you all a great afternoon. Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent.